Uh, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter if you like, because eventually we're going to be reading some, some verses there, and I won't tell you where yet, but I will in a few minutes. Before we do that, I want to invite you today to use your imagination a little bit. Uh, we do this sometimes, and, and I want you to, um, to place yourself in uh, the following scenarios, okay? So pretend that this is happening to you. And these are scenarios which I have sort of made up. Uh, so here's the first one. You have finally closed on your dream home, and you're in the process of moving in. The house ended up costing more than you expected, imagine that, and the payments are a little bit higher than you had hoped, but it looks like, um, you know, by being careful, you'll be able to afford the house, you'll be able to make the payments. And then suddenly you get word from your manager at work that your company has been purchased by a bigger company. They're going to be slimming down the workforce at your location, and your job might very well be on the chopping block. Here's another one. Your wife is in the process of giving birth to your first child. It's been a long, hard labor, and things don't seem to be progressing anymore. Your wife's blood pressure is approaching dangerous levels, and there are signs there may be some fetal distress. They whisk your wife back to the OR for an emergency C-section. Noticing your teenage son is spending way too much time on his phone, you look through its contents one day and find out that he's been viewing a lot of pornography. You're not sure exactly how deep this problem goes, and you really don't want to know. But what you do know is that you have to have a serious conversation. You're just not sure how to approach it or what that will lead to. Your daughter is driving back to college after spending the weekend at home. She usually calls you when she gets back to her dorm room, but you haven't heard anything this time. And you've just seen a news report indicating there's been a serious multi-vehicle accident on the road leading to her campus. During a regular doctor visit, you mentioned that you've been having a weird pain lately in the side of your abdomen. Doctor orders some scans that show a suspicious spot on one of your lungs. You have a biopsy scheduled for next week. Your small group leader at church has just announced that for the last week of your study on evangelism, the group will be walking through the streets of uptown Lexington in pairs, trying to engage people in discussions about God and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. All right. How's your blood pressure doing, everybody? Okay. Pretty good still? I have a few more, but I'm going to stop there. Uh, these, these hypothetical experiences that I have just shared with you have really two things in common. One is that they're, they're very realistic, right? I mean, in fact, I would say that if I haven't been through these or a variation of them, I, for each of these, I know someone who has either faced this scenario or something very similar. And then the second thing they have in common, you've probably figured out, is that they all induce a certain emotion, don't they? Fear. They are all fear inducing experiences. We're going to continue to talk about the emotion of fear this week in our, uh, our discussion of the different emotions that God has blessed us with. Uh, those uh, scenarios that I described might introduce different levels of fear, different kinds of fear, but again, uh, we, we, we learned last week that fear is the emotion that we experience when something that we value is threatened. The emotion we experience is something very important to us or maybe even moderately important to us, depending on what kind of fear we're talking about, something important to us is threatened. So a job, uh, finances, a relationship, a family member, our reputation, our health. And last week we looked at how not only how fear reveals a lot about us, especially about our values and what's important to us, but also how fear motivates us. 
Sometimes it motivates us to action. Uh, sometimes we found out it motivates us to inaction. It paralyzes us. But then I also hinted to you last week that this week would be a very simple message, a very straightforward sermon on the topic of what to do about our fears. And I said it wasn't very complicated to learn how to engage them. And I hope that, that that's what you'll find to be the case this week. So turn with me, if you're in First Peter, turn over to chapter 5, the last chapter of this book. <clears throat> and we're going to read some verses here, a couple of which are very famous verses, actually, you've probably heard before a lot. But starting in verse 6, Peter talking to some believers, many of whom are going through struggles and persecution and things like that at the time that they received this letter from him. And he says in in 5 verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We'll stop there. Today, I really want to major on verse 7, which is that short and very precious and very memorizable verse in the middle that you may have memorized even as a kid. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So we're going to talk about that verse. But the way I want to do that today is I want to kind of look at the verses around it and some other, some other things, kind of put together the pieces of a puzzle over the course of the message today, and then, you know, putting them together at the end, we'll be able to understand better. And in the process, I really just want to look at four things with you, and they're all very straightforward. So first, what I want to do is I want to take a look a little bit at the context of this verse, uh, meaning the verses around it, because Uh, You need to study the verses around a particular Bible verse in order to understand it better and to affirm its true meaning. And that's especially important with very brief, and especially some of these famous verses that we know real well, do they really mean what we think they mean, or is there a shade of meaning that's different, or maybe we've misunderstood them. And often by, and this is a great principle just in biblical study anyway, often by looking at the verses and the material around the verse, we can understand it a lot better. So we're going to try to do that with verse 7. Secondly, I want to look at the verse itself very closely at a couple of the words and phrases and what they mean. Thirdly, I'm going to give you one really, really simple application that will be real easy to remember going home. And then last, I want to take a few minutes and look at a case study from the Bible at someone who had to face fear and dealt with it in the right way, okay? So we're going to look at the context of verse 7, then the content of verse 7, then we're going to look at an application, and then a case study. So you'll be able to kind of track where we are as we go through. So as we prepare to consider verse 7, let's take a quick look at verses 6 and 8, the two verses around it, and maybe gather some insight here. Verse 6 contains the main verb for the section. There's really not a main verb in verse 7, but the the main verb that carries all the way through this verse is actually the one that starts out verse 6, which is humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, and to do so, it says, under God's mighty hand. Now, as we consider how we deal with our fears, many of us probably have to admit, I know that I do, that, that one way we habitually try to deal with our fears is to try to take control, right? Try to take over, try to get anything we can do we immediately do. We take over the situation. We take matters into our own hands, which is to say, you know, we kind of grab the steering wheel away from God when we're afraid. Because, I mean, think of it. Are you a good driver? No one ever says they're a bad driver, right? You're a good driver. I'm a good driver. We're all great drivers. We're all above average drivers. Most of us know that. 
And when push comes to shove, great drivers like us like to be behind the wheel, right? But this verse reminds us that when it comes to the really fearful times in life, we have tended to overrate our driving ability. In times of real fear and uncertainty, what we should be doing is the exact opposite of what we think we should do because we try to grab hold of the wheel and we should be doing something else. We should be humbling ourselves, remembering that we are not God, and making sure that the real God, whose hand is mighty to save and to do something about our issues, is the one holding the steering wheel. So yeah, you may be a great driver, but you're not as good a driver as he is. Beyond that, I want you to look at the end of the verse too. And this is also perhaps part of humbling ourselves. But if you look at the verse carefully, when does it say God will lift us up? When does it say God will exalt us? When will he deliver us from our problem that we're afraid of? Answer, yeah, it's up to him. And the language here, in due time or at the proper time, indicates that it might take a while. It might take a while, which we don't like to hear, especially when we're under some kind of threat, right? Because fear, fear and inexperience, or not inexperience, impatience, I should say. Fear and impatience, um, they're kind of close cousins, aren't they? They often like to hang out together. And it might not be hard, or it might be hard for us to hear. But the way our fears end up getting conquered is not by the immediate solving of all of our problems. That's not the way our fear gets conquered. Dealing successfully with fear often means learning to wait, to wait upon God. That's one of the other ways that, that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is by abiding by his schedule and his timing. Now, we get a little bit more context from verse 8. There we find out that somewhere in the neighborhood of our fears, Satan is lurking. And he's described here as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And when you read that verse, you're like, you know what, here I am trying to deal with my fears, and Peter's telling me that Satan's running around like a lion wanting to devour me. That doesn't help very much. Well, let's look at it carefully, because it's kind of interesting. You know, Satan, when he's pictured in the Bible, is often pictured in a number of different ways. Sometimes, as Paul points out, he, is, he comes across as an angel of light. Very often, Satan comes up as, as something very beautiful and deceptive, and, and, and he tries to fool us through temptation and trickery and sort of seducing us to follow him. That's what he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent was not an ugly or fearful animal. The serpent was the most beautiful animal in the garden. And so Eve was fooled. She was deceived. But this is different here. A roaring lion is, is very different. There, there are few more terrifying things in the world and, and more terrifying sounds than the roar of a lion in the night. And lions don't roar, think about it, when they're trying to sneak up on you, do they? That would be no point. No, lions roar in order to strike fear and intimidation into their opponents. Usually other lions, but maybe other beings as well sometimes. And a lion will roar to scare you off. A lion will roar to claim something as his own and to say, you can't have it. You can't come over here. This is mine. And oddly enough, I did not know this, but doing a little bit of research, I found this out. Lions roar almost exclusively at night. I didn't know that, but isn't that interesting? Certainly Satan loves to try to strike fear into us at times when we're trying to navigate the darkness right? When we can't see the road ahead of us, when we feel less certainty, and as a result, we feel less secure. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
And fear and uncertainty are also very close cousins, right? So we don't know what's coming. We're kind of in the dark. It's that time when Satan has a better chance to make us panic. Of course, at night, if it's like pitch black, if you're supposed to be following somebody like Jesus, if you're supposed to be following a guide when you're walking at night, you know, during the daytime, you can maybe let some distance, you know, get between you because you can kind of see and you know where everybody is. But at night, when you're walking through the jungle or you're walking through the forest and you've got a guide, you want to stay really close. You may even want to be where you can touch the person or hold hands or something like that because, you know, who knows what's lurking in the darkness. That's when you stick most closely to your guide and your protector. Peter says, resist. Resist him. To me, that's a very hopeful word because Peter assumes that we can do it. And Peter may even know about that promise that's in that other book of James where it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Resist the devil, Peter says, same as James, and he'll flee. Not only is God a better driver than you, but he is stronger and more powerful and wiser than the devil. But let's go back now and look at verse 7 itself. And I just want to make two observations from the wording here. First of all, what are we supposed to do with our anxieties, with our fears? Well, it says here that we're supposed to cast them onto God. Notice how it does not say we are supposed to share them with God. Like, here, God, here's half of it, and I'll hold this end, and you hold the other end. It doesn't say that. It says, let it go. Do what Elsa here, okay? Let it go. So that the whole thing lands on God. That's the picture. You're throwing it on him. And it also doesn't mean let God come and take your fears away. It didn't say that either. This is an active thing you have to do. God, it doesn't say God's going to come and take them off your hands. No, it says it's an active verb. It requires action on your part. You have to do the casting. And this verb, I'll tell you a little about it. It's a participle, and it's not in the present tense. It's in the aorist tense. And here's what that means. It means that probably the most accurate way this could be translated is having cast all your cares upon him having cast all your cares upon him. This, that is to say, this is not something that we do continually without end. The act of throwing our cares onto God is something that can be accomplished over and done with. It can be settled. Paul says over in Philippians 4 that our anxieties can actually be replaced by the peace of God that goes beyond anything we understand. If we deal with our fears properly, we can actually leave them behind. Isn't that encouraging? Going on here, let me show you something else that's encouraging. Because I feel like I was giving you bad news in 6 and 8, I'm going to give you the good news in 7 here. Why should you do this? According to this verse, what enables you or moves you or encourages you to cast your cares totally and completely upon God? What's the reason? Simple. He cares for you. Let that one sink in. He cares for you. And this word cares is another word that has a very broad meaning and is translated in many other ways in the New Testament. You could, accurate, you could accurately translate this sentence as he is concerned for you or even he is anxious for you. Now, I don't know if I can picture God being anxious. I don't think God loses any sleep over you because he doesn't sleep anyway. But, but the idea here, you get it, is that he is emotionally invested in you and in your problem. Another perfectly acceptable way to translate this, and it's translated this way sometimes in the New Testament, would be, you matter to him. 
you matter to him. So does your situation, yes, but ultimately what matters to him even more than your situation is you. You personally. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is not some just distant and detached God way up there in the sky somewhere. No, this is your dad. And he loves you, and he makes your life his business. If you're a parent, you understand that. You know that whatever happens in the life of your kids automatically pulls you in, right? You, you, you can get preoccupied with their lives sometimes because of the relationship you have with them. It's automatic. Their concerns are your concerns. That's the relationship you have with God. That's what's happening here with him. He cares. Now, with that understanding, let me give you the simple one-word application for this sermon. And it's not going to be hard to figure out. How do you cast your cares upon your heavenly Father? I heard it. Pray. Pray. Are you fearful? Pray. Are you anxious? Pray. Are you concerned? Pray. Are you terrified? Pray. Are you overwhelmed by all of your worries and cares and, 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 and things are just piling up? Pray. But pray as we kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, pray according to the truth of the verses that we've been studying this morning, which is to say pray, first of all, in relationship. Pray in relationship. Prayer is not just some transaction where you register your request in some celestial suggestion box somewhere. Prayer is a conversation with God who loves you. So pray confident in His love, confident in His concern for you, and pray fully conscious of the fact that He is with you. Can I say that again? He is with you right there, right now, in the room. God is with you. One author I was reading this week about this admitted that he was scared of the dark. And by the way, he said research shows that a lot more adults than you think are scared of the dark. So maybe some of you are scared of the dark. He said he doesn't like taking the trash out late at night because he's scared of the dark. But when he does, he is comforted if his cat goes with him. And I thought, okay, um, maybe you think that's weird, or maybe you're, you're kind of giggling, but you can relate to that, right? Well, if your cat can do that, how much more comfort can you take from knowing that, that the God of the universe indeed is with you as you face your fears in the dark? So pray in relationship, and then keep praying until you have thoroughly cast all your cares upon him. In other words, keep praying until God replaces the anxiety with peace. And let's just note one more word here in verse 7. It's the word all, right? Cast all your cares upon him. This is actually, by the way, the first word in the verse in Greek, which is often done for emphasis, all. And, and you know, it's hard to cast something or to throw something if you can't get a handle on it, Right? I'm playing infield and somebody hits me a ground ball and it's in my glove. I can't get it out. If I can't get a hold of the ball, I can't throw it. You've got to get a hold of your fears. It's hard to cast something if you don't have a grip. So you've got to find it. You've got to get a hold of it before you can cast it. And in the process of praying, in the process of handing your fears over to God, what you're going to have to do is to name them one by one. Name your fears. Call them out. Own up to them. Then you can hand them over. So ask yourself questions like this. What are you afraid of really? What exactly is it that you love or that you value that is being threatened? What is the disaster that could befall you? Go ahead and name it. Say what you're afraid of. Don't be superstitious. Tell him. 
What exactly is keeping you up at night? See, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and some of you know this happens, sometimes as you're, as you're forming your prayer to God and as you listen to your own words that are coming out of your mouth, it suddenly dawns upon you how ridiculous your fear is. Not always, but that happens sometimes. But either way, we need, we need to do that. We need to put it into words. Name it, own it, get a grip on it in your mind, examine it, and you know what? Then throw it to God. Throw it on God and keep doing it until he brings you peace. And then you're done. Like I said, this is not a complicated process. And yet, just because something is simple does not mean that it's easy, right? It can be hard. Praying your fears to God can be a gut-wrenching experience. Let me give you, as we draw to a close here, just, just one case study from the Bible. And it's one that the author of this book, Peter, would have been very familiar with because he was there when it happened. I'm going to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to show you what Jesus did. Peter was there. Peter saw it. When Jesus said, Jesus said these words to Peter and James and John. So Peter heard Jesus say, my soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. Those are Matthew's words. Luke's version says that Jesus was in agony. Mark's version says that Jesus just fell on the ground. The Greek words here are very powerful. This is not just garden variety sorrow or garden variety stress. Jesus was in agony. Not the agony of pain, but the agony of the fear of pain. The agony of the anticipation of pain. You know how the doctor pulls the needle out and he hasn't stuck it in your arm yet? And you're like, I know what that's going to feel like. Only a million times worse. The word Luke uses here for agony that Jesus was experiencing, if you look it up, is defined in the Greek lexicon as great fear, terror of death, anxiety, and then agony. The man was under so much emotional stress that he was bleeding from his pores. Jesus, the Son of God, was scared to death. Now we'll talk in a minute about what could get him to that state. But what did he do when he was scared to death? He prayed. First, he went to his disciples and he said, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. And they didn't. They fell asleep. And so in their case, Satan actually won the next round. They gave in to their fear. They were cowed into running away. And in Peter's case, even denying that he knew Jesus three times that night. You think that maybe Peter just had that in mind when he wrote verse 8 about the roaring lion and about being watchful and alert? So what was Jesus so afraid of? What horrible thing was he anticipating that would cause the Son of God to act so fearful and look, at this point, honestly, not very heroic? What was happening to him? What was he afraid of? He names it. He names it in his prayer to the Father. He says, this cup, this cup that I have to drink. What was in the cup? God's wrath, suffering, judgment, shame, abandonment, and something Jesus had never experienced, sin. He was about to be covered in it. And as a result, he was going to experience an eternity of suffering and loss all crammed into one unthinkable six-hour period. 
That's what he was afraid of. And so Jesus prayed a very honest prayer to his father. He said, Father, I'm afraid. I don't want to do this. But if you still say I have to, I will. He didn't get closure the first time. Did you notice that? He had to go back a second time. In fact, it took three trips. Father, I'm afraid. I don't want to do this. But if you insist, I'll do it. And God didn't take away the burden. Did you notice that? But he did take away the anxiety. He did. In fact, God sent an angel to strengthen and encourage Jesus. And from that point forward, the matter was settled. Jesus never looked back. He never lost his composure again. There was a peace in his heart. Even as the world around him went completely insane with anger and fear and hatred and and took it all out on him. And then, in due time, at the proper time, as Peter would later phrase it here, in this case, in three days, what happened? God lifted him up, literally. He exalted him. He raised him from the dead. What's the worst thing? We asked this last week, didn't we? What's the worst thing that could happen? It happened. And it couldn't hold Jesus in the ground. And it can't hold you in the ground either if your faith is in him. Now this, of course, is not just a case study, is it? It's it's the story of our salvation. It was for us that Jesus went through all of this. And and yeah, maybe you think of Jesus as a special case, and maybe in some some ways he is, but even so, if Jesus had to respond to his greatest fear by running to his Father in prayer, how much more do we have to do that? So at the end of the day, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? Are you in fear? Pray. But don't pray as the world prays, throwing words up to heaven with some vague hope that somebody up there might be listening. No. Pray as those who have been saved forever by what Jesus has done. Pray with confidence in the Father's personal and intimate concern for you. And pray until God gives you the peace that he has promised to give you. And then trust in his love, trust in his power, and here's the hard part, Trust in his timing. Let me give you a few minutes just to perhaps bow your heads and and then we'll close by reading this last verse. Whatever you're afraid of right now, whatever fears, anxieties, apprehensions, overwhelming thoughts are entering your heart right now or have been there for a while probably, you've got some, some work to do. We all do. We have some casting to do. We might have some naming to do, some getting a grip on what it is that we're afraid of, what it is that we really value, what we're afraid of losing. What are you you afraid will happen? What is the disaster? What is the worst that could happen? We don't want to go there, but when we name it, when we get to the depth of it and pick it up and lift it, then then we can cast it over onto God. He promises to exchange his peace for that fear. What is it this morning? Just take a minute or two. Think about what that is.
Now listen to these words as if for the first time. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.